in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians and chapter 1 from verse 24. The 24th verse of the first chapter of Colossians. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and fill up on my part that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I was made a minister according to the dispensation of God which was given me to you, Ward, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid for ages and generations, but now hath it been manifested to his saints, to whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ, whereunto I labor also, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. For I would have you know how greatly I strive for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be comforted, they being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, that they may know the mystery of God, even Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden. This I say that no one may delude you with persuasiveness of speech. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As therefore ye received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and builded up in him and established in your faith, even as ye were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now this evening, I want to speak uh, upon the subject I have entitled Experiencing Christ. Experiencing Christ. I think there is a very real need for us just to talk together about experiencing the Lord Jesus himself. You will note in the reading that we read together in Colossians 1 from verse 24 to chapter 2 verse 6 that Paul says very much about his ministry and the ministry of course of others with him and he says on the one hand there is something that sounds as if it's complete and already done Christ in you the hope of glory but on the other side, he says, we whom we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect. That we may present every man perfect. Here is 
the riches of the glory, or is it the glory of the riches? The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. This is what Paul is proclaiming. This glorious and wonderful mystery, Christ in you. And uh, literally, it is Christ in you, and you, and you, and you. Some versions, continental versions, put it, Christ among you. Because the idea is Christ in us all, in all of us, in you all. Christ in you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. The hope of glory. That's the, the, um, uh, the ministry of the apostle. And he says that all the sufferings that he's going through and everything else, all his labors, all his travail, is to this great, uh, for this great object. Christ in us all. The very hope, the certain hope of glory. And then he says that it has this other great practical objective that we may be presented, every one of us, perfect. Now that immediately suggests progress. In other words, the very idea behind this suggests that there's a process in the Christian life. There must be a progress in the Christian life. It's not just a question that you and I have everything and we sit back and say we've got everything. But somehow or other, we've got to go on so that we may be presented perfect before Christ. Perfect, complete, full-grown. We've uh, spiritually adult. We've grown up. And that's the objective of this. Now that's why we're going to talk this evening about experiencing Christ. And the first thing I want to say, if we're going to get through what we've got to say this evening, the first thing I want to say is this, God has given us all in Christ. God has given us all in Christ. Now you may have heard that many times, to some of you it may be new. But the fact remains, the truth of the matter is this, God has given us, you and me, all in Christ. There is nothing extra to Christ. There is nothing given to us apart from Christ. And there is nothing for us additional to Christ. Now that may seem very, far, very basic, very elementary, but in actual fact, it goes to the roots of an awful lot of confusion amongst God's people. Because some speak as if somehow or other there are experiences to be had which are not to do with Christ. They're somehow other than Christ. And some people talk sometimes even of experiences of the Holy Spirit as if somehow or other they are apart from Jesus Christ, as if they are extra or additional to Jesus Christ. You can have an experience of Christ, and you can have an experience of the Holy Spirit, as if these two things can be, as it were, separate. They can be uh, independently identified. Here you can experience Christ in one way, and here you can have an experience of the Holy Spirit in another way. Now what we are saying uh, to begin with this evening, is that God has given us all in Christ. 
There is nothing given extra to him. There is nothing to be experienced apart from him, outside of him. There is nothing that we can come into additional to Jesus Christ. Now that's why this Colossian letter was written. Because someone was disturbing the church at Colossae and telling them that there was something extra to Christ. There was something even more than Christ. And whoever was telling this was talking about angels and visions and all kinds of things that had the, the feeling and the atmosphere, the facade of truth and reality. And so Paul came to write this tremendous letter with the one great theme. God has given us everything in Jesus Christ. And he gives us nothing apart from him. Nothing additional to him. Now we shall explain that in a moment. God has not given us, let's put it another way, God has not, not given us it or it this thing and that thing, this teaching and that teaching, this experience and that experience as just things, as just feelings, as just even spiritual emotions. He hasn't given us things or its. He has given us a person. And in that person, he has given us all. Now that's why toward the end of his life, the Apostle John sat down and wrote the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is quite different to the other Gospels. As you all know, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are just the story of what happened, the narrative of the Lord's ministry. But John had a tremendous burden upon him. And he sat down under the government and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he wrote the fourth Gospel as we know it, the Gospel according to John. And this gospel is altogether different in many ways to the other, at least in objective. It is not a narrative. It is not just a historical account. It is an interpretation. Now, the other three gospels may have some interpretation in them, obviously, but that wasn't their supreme objective when they were written. They were written as a narrative, as a historical account of the Lord Jesus. Yes, uh, we see him in one as king and the other as servant and the other in his humanity. But John sat down with a different objective. It wasn't a historical account that he was writing. It was an interpretation from the beginning. And this is his theme. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And then steadily, step by step, John goes right through the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus and he shows it. it's not its. It's not experiences. It's not blessings. It's not things. It's not even teachings. It's a person. The person is the bread of life. The person is the water of life. The person is the resurrection and the life. The person is the way, the truth and the life. It's the person all the way through from beginning to end. John, as it were, presents everything in Jesus Christ. Nothing outside of him. Nothing apart from him. As if John, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, saw the danger that we so quickly as believers get into. 
and that is we bring it all down to its and things and so on. And so he points out to us that it is a person God has given to us. Now if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, we have it very, very clearly put in words that are familiar. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who was made unto us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, what is the Apostle Paul saying? He is saying almost the same thing as the Apostle John. He is saying that, the Lord, that wisdom is not a thing, it's a person. Righteousness, justification, is not a thing or a teaching or an experience. Alone. It's a person. It's an experience, but it's the experience of a person. He tells us that sanctification is not a blessing. It's not just a thing. It's a person. And he tells us that redemption, final redemption, even of the body, is not just going to be a thing. It's a person. Jesus Christ is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And of course you've got the famous verses in 1 John chapter 5, Verse um, 10 or is 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12. Uh, John writing again. The witness is this. That God gave unto us eternal life. Eternal life. Now what is eternal life? He goes on. The, uh, the, and this life is in his son. He that hath the son hath the life. And he that hath not the son of God hath not the life. So we can underline something which most of us have heard again and again. God does not give us things or blessings or experiences as such. He gives us a person. And in that person, he gives us everything. Now there may be the blessing of entering into something more of that person. There may be the experience of that person in a deeper, fuller way. But the thing that overwhelms us, the thing that overshadows everything else, is that it is a person that we are meeting with, a person that we are experiencing. It is an interesting thing that there is not in the whole Bible any talk of things or its. If you go right through from the Bible, right through from Genesis, right through to the book of Revelation, you will find that every great saint of God, whether it's a patriarch or a prophet or a priest or the New Testament apostles or ordinary people like you and me, whoever it is, you will find that whenever they come into something deep and lasting, it's a person. Who was it that Abraham met with? When, when the Lord made that great covenant with it, he didn't say it's an it, it's a thing. It was a person. Who was it that Moses met with? Was it an it, a thing, a teaching, a revelation of it? No, he said, I have seen God face to face and live. Who was it that Isaiah saw when he was in the temple? Oh, he saw the most wonderful thing. He saw this, or he saw that, or he saw the other. No, it says... He, he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and immediately he fell as one dead. Woe is me, for I am an unclean man. Unclean lips. 
And so you can go right through the scriptures and you will find it doesn't matter what the experience is. It doesn't matter what the need is of the person or how that need is met. It is always and only in a person. And it is not the it or the thing that is left with the child of God, but the person. Now that's very important. All is in Christ. The work is finished. The basis is laid. The provision is made. And the purpose of God for us is safeguarded. The Lord Jesus Christ has finished the work on Calvary. There is absolutely nothing to be added to that work. It's a finished work. Absolutely finished. And in that finished work is included not only our justification, the cleansing and forgiveness and pardon of our sins, our being made righteous before God, but also our being given the holiness of God, the very life and power of God imparted to us. All is included in that finished work. Even our final glorification is included in that finished work of Jesus Christ. The, the, therefore, the basis is laid for God to do anything in your life. There is not a single thing God can't do in your life. There is not a problem God can't overcome. There is no obstacle that God can't overcome. There is no hindrance that he cannot overcome. The, it's not that you're anything. It's not that you deserve it. It's not that you and I in ourselves merit the favor and grace of God. It is that Jesus Christ has finished the work. And because Jesus Christ has finished the work, a foundation is laid for God to do anything in any person. That's the thing that Mary Magdalene got hold of. Do you honestly think that a woman, I often mention her, but do you honestly think that that woman found it easy to be a Christian? The kind of life she lived for some 20 years, and you think that she just stepped into being a Christian just like that, without any temptations, without any earthbound tendencies, without any snares or traps, any thoughts in the mind to trouble her? Don't you think she must have had a terrible time of it? Of course. But how is it that that woman became the saint she became? It was the work of Jesus Christ and the basis that was laid. And so it is with all others. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea or uh, uh, Mary Magdalene or that Philippian jailer. What a hard, cruel man he must have been. As hardened a man as any criminal in his jail. And yet somehow or other there is a foundation, a basis laid for God to do something in these lives where there's faith. Where there is no faith, of course, the work is hindered. But where there is faith, God can do something because it is not faith in themselves. But it is faith in what Jesus Christ has finished on the cross. There's a basis laid for God to do anything in any one of us. There is a basis. And there's a provision made on that basis. It's as if God says, now look here, I give you everything on the basis of the finished work of Christ. I give you nothing on the basis of what you are or what you are not. But I give you everything on the basis of what Jesus Christ 
is and what he has done. Now that's a tremendous statement. Some of us need the Holy Spirit. We need to know in a vital experience of the Holy Spirit. Do you honestly think God is going to give you an experience of the Holy Spirit because you're something in yourself? You can be down here and grow as old as Methuselah. My dear friend, you'll never have an experience of the Holy Spirit. Never, never, never. If you are waiting for you to get to a, a stage where you're something that God can, as it were, bring you into the reality of the inward ministry of the Holy Spirit, of course not. God gives us all on the basis that Jesus Christ has finished the work. That's the basis. And when you and I see that basis, suddenly it's as if the gates of heaven open. Until then, we're hammering on them. Oh, Lord, open them, open them, open them, Lord. Give me something. I need this. I need that. We hammer and hammer and hammer and hammer. Lord, I'll pray more. Lord, I'll witness more. Lord, I'll give more. Lord, I'll do anything. We hammer on the gates. Lord, open them up and give us a bit more. The Lord cannot open those gates. For it says in Psalm 24 that no one can ascend into the hill of the Lord but he that has clean hands and a pure heart. And it would be a terrible thing if the first half of Psalm 24 was all we'd got of Psalm 24. But the last part of Psalm 24 tells us who's gone in. And it isn't you and me, but it's the King of Glory who's gone in with clean hands and a pure heart. He's finished the work. And he's gone into the presence of God for us. And now he takes everything in his nail-pierced hands and he distributes it to us. He has led captivity captive and distributed gifts amongst men. Isn't that wonderful? He is the king of glory. He's gone right into the presence of God and the Father gives in to those pure, clean hands, nail-pierced. Everything that you and I need, it's all given to him for us. That's why Jesus is called the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. That's why it is the Lord Jesus in us who is the hope of glory. That's why it is always Christ, Christ, Christ first, Christ last, Christ all, Christ alpha and omega, Christ every letter in between. Everything is in Christ. God has put it all into Christ and given us Christ. Now here's the basis, a finished work, the basis laid, and the provision made. In other words, God has made provision for you and for me. I don't know what you need, but it's there in Christ for you. In his nail-pierced hands, he has it for you. Not because you deserve it, but because he has won it for you. Won it for you. And he's giving it to you on the basis of his own righteousness and his own finished work, his own agony on the cross at Calvary. But there's more than that. It's not just and only that provision is made, but the whole is safeguarded. The purpose of God is safeguarded. Now someone says, how is it the whole safeguarded? Well, I'll tell you how the whole is safeguarded. The Lord Jesus has risen and is ascended and enthroned at the right hand of God. And because he is seated at the right hand of God, everything is safeguarded. The whole is safeguarded. It's not as if somehow or other you and I may have doubts and just wonder in our hearts, now can he do it with me? Yes, with Mary Slessor 
or Hudson Taylor, or the Apostle Paul, or John Wesley, or Madame Guy, of course, of course. I mean, they were all extraordinary people, weren't they? But me, can God do it for me and with me? The Lord Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. And that is the safeguarding of the whole. For he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, is this true or is it not true? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. <coughs> Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Here we got it, the finished work. One sacrifice for sins forever. Here we've got his, his safeguarding of it all. Sat down, he's not fighting anymore. Sat down at the right hand of of God, henceforth expecting till his enemies be made the footstool of his feet. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Perfected forever them that are saved, no, sanctified. In other words, this whole matter of sanctification, holiness, fullness of the Spirit, whatever you like to call it, it all goes back to the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. And the fact that he sat down at the Father's right hand waiting till his enemies become the footstool of his feet. If you turn to chapter 12 and verse 2, we read this, looking unto Jesus, the author, that is the initiator, the source, pioneer of our faith, and perfecter or completer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and hath sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here again, then, this is where we're to look. Where are we to look? We're to look unto Jesus. But where is Jesus? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author and the finisher of our faith. You turn back to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, you have the same thought again, who being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the whole of our Christian life and every part of the life of the church is encompassed with this, from purification of sins to being perfected, uh, those who are sanctified, being perfected, and looking unto Jesus, author and finisher of our faith. And it all goes back to his finished work and to his present position on, at the right hand of God the Father. Now, is it really true to say that all is in Christ, that there is nothing extra to him, Nothing additional to him. Are we being a little unbalanced? Are we being a little unfair to perhaps other things in the scripture? Well, let's have another look at the word of God. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 19. 
For it was the good pleasure of the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. It was the pleasure of the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. Now listen to the way the Amplified puts that, as if it isn't enough. Listen. For it has pleased the Father that all the divine fullness the sum total of the divine perfection, powers, and attributes should dwell in him permanently. Could it be more clearly put? Listen to it in living letters. Beautifully put. Again, listen to it here in this paraphrased version. For, and I love this, listen, I'd like to write this on one of the walls somewhere. <laughs> For God wanted all of himself to be in his son. Now go away and think about that. God wanted all of himself to be in his son. Now tell me, is there anything extra? Is there anything additional? Is there anything apart from him? God wanted all of himself to be in his son. Isn't that glorious? God has given us everything in his son, inexhaustible ocean of fullness in him. I think that's wonderful. Well, let's get it quite clear. Then we look at Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Again, very well-known words. For in him well of all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and in him ye are made full. Now, those are well-known words, but listen to them here in the living letters They've got somehow an, an electric quality. Listen. Another verse I'd like to put up on another wall. <laughs> For in Christ there is all of God in a human body. Now think. Think. How wonderfully put that is. For in Christ there is all of God in a human body. So you have everything when you have Christ. Isn't that marvelous? Marvelous. Well, do we need to go any further? Well, we can read Colossians 3, verse 11, where it says, the last part, Christ, is all and in all. That's what God wants. Christ is all and in all. There's no place for anything else. He is everything. He is all and in all. Now, if that is true, there are one or two things we should say. If we have established this simple point and we can clear up some confusion in some minds in this matter, God has given all in Christ. Then we can say this, all spiritual experience consists in knowing Christ, practically experiencing him in a deeper way. It doesn't matter where, how you look, whether it's being saved or whether it's some deeper experience, whether it's some revelation of the Lord, it all consists. This, all true spiritual experience consists in experiencing Christ 
in a practical way. For instance, look at Philippians 3. Here is a man at the end of his life. And what does he say? Well, now, if there was any man who could boast of experiences, visions, dreams, wonderful incidents of divine leading, sovereign overruling, experiences of all kinds, why, you've got them littered through every letter. You can't go anywhere before you're falling, falling over some experience or another of the Apostle Paul. He speaks of the earnest of the Spirit. He speaks of being sealed in the Spirit. He speaks of being crucified with Christ. He speaks of Christ loving who loved me and gave himself for me. And so he goes on and goes on. He speaks of sufferings. He speaks of when he's weak, then he is strong. He speaks of being perplexed and yet not under despair, always bearing about in his body the dying of Jesus. Any man who's got more experiences. Now listen to what he says. You would have thought, he said, now my dear children, these are the kind of things you've got to have. You've got to have this, and you've got to have that, and you've got to have that. I'm an old man now. I'm getting near the end now. I want to tell you what you should have. You should have this, and you should have that, and I can give you the steps. You take this first step, second step, third step, fourth step, and you're in. But this is what he says. He says, verse 7, how be it what things were gained to me, these have I counted loss. For Christ. That's the sum total of Paul's experience. He sums it all up in there. For Christ. And then he goes on. Uh, yea, verily I count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I suffered the loss of all things and do count them but refuse that I may gain heaven. No. That I may gain glory? No. That I may gain power? No. That I may gain Christ? You know, it's almost like a parrot. Comes back again and again to this one great theme as he talks about it. And then he goes on and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. He doesn't say that I might be just justified. Here he's speaking that I might be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. Even that which is of the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him. And the power of his, his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformable unto his death. It's amazing, isn't it? Here's an old man writing. He's summing it all up in Christ. Everything, as far as he's concerned, is Christ. It's not it. It's not a thing. It's not an experience. It's a person. And then he goes on, you see, Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and stretching forward to the things which are before, I press on toward the goal under the prize of the high calling of God in in the city of God, no. In glory, no. In the ages to come, no. In Christ Jesus. For, for the Apostle Paul, it is absolutely true for him to live was Christ. He didn't matter where he turned, what he found, what he experienced. It was Christ. It was a person, not a thing. Now, this is the fullness of Christ. This is the fullness of God. You see, you must never think that you can reduce Christ to an elementary experience. Some people say, first you have an experience of Christ, and then you have an experience of the Holy Spirit. What are they talking about? 
Some people say, first you have an experience of the salvation of Christ, and then you have the second blessing. What is the second blessing? Second experience of Christ, yes, thank God. Second experience of Christ, third experience of Christ, fourth experience of Christ, fifth experience of Christ. As long as you live, you'll have more experiences of him if you're alive spiritually. God will never let you alone on this matter. He'll always be preparing you for some deeper new experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right the way through life and possibly in the ages to come for all I know. But this we can be certain of, absolutely certain of, the fullness, this fullness is Christ, this, this fullness of God, the fullness of the Spirit is really the fullness of Christ. Now, is it possible? Uh, let me put it this way, I think it's better. I think we should put it this way to underline it. It is impossible to know anything or experience anything anything of Christ in a practical, inward way apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, there may be many aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit, but it is impossible to know or inwardly experience Jesus Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't matter how much you argue upon this point. Clinically, we can't be clinical, but theologically, it is absolutely impossible to experience anything of Jesus Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. You do not even know godly sorrow that leads to repentance apart from the Holy Spirit. You do not even know conviction of sin, of righteousness, of judgment apart from the Holy Spirit. You cannot be led into the truth as it is in Jesus, but by the Spirit of truth. It is the Holy Spirit. God be blessed for him who leads us into everything. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you and I would be as dead as stones. We couldn't do a thing. For it is the Holy Spirit who is the agent of God. And he moves upon the waters and brings out of the formless void the great chaos and confusion. He brings order and life and design and peace and joy and fulfillment. It is the Spirit of God. Get this absolutely clear. That when it says in Romans 8 verse 9, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It doesn't just mean that uh, uh, he's not saved. It means that he, it is impossible to have anything of Jesus Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. You cannot know Jesus Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. This must be underlined very, very much. We need, therefore, not only an initial experience, but an ever-increasing one of all God has given us in Christ. Now, I think that's very important. Now, we come to the second point. If we've said that everything is ours in Jesus Christ, then what are the various aspects of the provision God has made for us in Christ? Now here we come to what we really want to underline and emphasize this evening. What really is this provision God has made for us? There are many various aspects. Let no one think that one experience simply catapults you into all that God has for you. Initially, you may need a bomb under you spiritually that blows you into something more of him and so you wake up one day and find somehow or other you're in a new sphere. 
You can't exactly tell what's happened, but you're in a new sphere. Something's happened. But from that moment on, it's got to be a progressive appropriation of what is yours in him. Having said all that we have said about God giving us all in Christ, we must underline the danger, on the one hand, of being too general or vague or abstract, and on the other hand, of being too specific and too defined. Now, let me make myself clear. On the one hand, you get people who say, oh, well, of course, I need more of the Lord. But they never get more of the Lord. They are so vague and so abstract and so generalized that it's an excuse for not doing anything. In other words, some people are frightened of the very aspect of the fullness of Jesus Christ that they need. And they hide behind an abstract, vague term. Well, I don't like this talk about um, uh, such and such an experience or such and such uh, 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 a way into fullness or something else or something else, uh, they say. I want more of the Lord. Well, all right. But do they really specifically seek God for more of the Lord? Or is it just one of those taking of the Lord's name in vain? You know, the kind of thing. Oh, well, you know, I don't like that kind of thing. Uh, what we need is more of the Lord. Well, dear brother, dear sister, that's very good if you are on your knees and really asking God for more of the Lord. Because I'll tell you something. When you get on your knees and start to ask the Lord for something more of him, very quickly you will become clear that the Lord is saying yes, but there's so much. Do you know what you need of him? So never think that you can stay there in a vague, abstract way of just saying, I need more of Christ. When you start to really seek the Lord, you will find before long you become aware that there is something you need. There is something missing in your life. There is some aspect in your experience that needs to be touched. And as you go on, you've got to ask. You're not asking for a thing. You're not asking for a blessing. You're not asking for just an experience. You're asking for something of the Lord in this way. That's very important. So we can have this vague, abstract idea, which is a taking of the Lord's name in vain, in many cases. On the other hand, we can be so specific and so defined that it is painful, positively painful, that the people who go round rather like Donald Duck. Uh, just one line, or quack, 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 all the time on one line, they've got no other line, and for every single problem and every single difficulty, it's this thing. Well, thank God if they have come into it. And thank God if it's changed their lives. But God forbid that they should think that one particular uh, experience should be the answer for everything and everyone. But this is what happens. We get so specific, too specific and too defined. And so, you know, when I came to an experience of the cross, everyone had it for six months. You know, it was the answer to everything. It was the answer for everyone. All the world's problems were settled uh, in dying to self. And so they are in one way, aren't they? But I dread to think some of the damage that can be done as we hammer home to people quite unprepared, uh, uh, as we have been by the Spirit of God, uh, what they must do uh, in this line or that line. Now, this is true. Christ is given to us 
as I see it now, in five ways. Christ is given to us in five ways. And in that five-fold way, we have every experience at present. It used to be four. I've now increased it to five. Um, um, uh, as far as I can see, it may grow to six one day. I don't know. Uh, but as I see it at present, in that five-fold way, every single experience in church history can be somehow brought in. In some way or another, you find the whole experience of God's people in all ages and generations of times can be brought in. Now, what are those um, five things? Well, the first is we put Christ for us. Christ for us. Let's look at some scriptures. Galatians 2.20 the last part of the verse. This is how God gives us Christ. He gives him for us. That is, in my place. In my place. Here it is. The last part. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, we read this. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins. God gives us Christ for us. We've been given Christ for us. That's the first. The second is this. Christ as us. Sounds a little awkward. Christ as us. God has given Christ as me, as you. Let's turn to Galatians 2.20 again, and the first part of that, and you have an example of it. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I that live. I have been crucified with Christ, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that one died for all, therefore all died. One died for all, therefore all died. He died as me. Because he died, we all died. It's as simple as that. One is dead now to the world. One is dead to self. Christ as us. The next we find is Christ in us. Christ in us. Now you've got time this everywhere, but we'll take one scripture, Galatians 1, verse 16, to reveal, let's just take the first part of verse 15, when it was the good pleasure of God, verse 16, to reveal his Son in me. Christ in you. Christ in me. That's the third aspect of, of Christ. The fourth is this. Christ with us. Christ with us. It's uh, term to... 
Um, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, last part, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Christ with us. Now the last one needs more thinking about. Christ through us. And where do we find that? Well, if you turn uh, to 1 Corinthians and chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you have a whole chapter on the body. And the body is for the personality. The personality expresses itself through the body. It's not only in the body, but it's through the body. The body is a means for expressing oneself. You've got the same thought in John 15, the vine. It is the Lord Jesus in us, expressing himself through us in fruit. In fruit. I have appointed you that ye should go and bear much fruit. The fruit is the evidence of Christ in us. Again, the Lord Jesus said that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. When he spoke of your light, letting our light so shine before men. It's something through us. The light is Christ, and it is through us that it reaches men and women and awakens them so that they glorify our God, our Father, when they see him in us. And again, in... Um, uh, 2 Corinthians and chapter 3, Paul speaks of, his, of us as being a letter, a letter from God, a letter as it were that God is seeking to reach others, and he is seeking to reach them through us. Now, if we look at that in this way, I think we understand something of uh, the fullness of Christ that is given to us all. And um, there, I have a little uh, design. I used it some years ago. I want to use it in a slightly different way um, tonight, which I think helps us. Because in those, those five aspects of Christ, we have everything. The first two, are essentially connected with Calvary. Christ for us, Christ as us. It is all to do with his dying for our sins, his being crucified as us. I have been crucified. One died for all, therefore all died. The next two are to do with Pentecost. Christ in us, he breathed upon them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And then Christ with us, the Holy Spirit upon us, coming upon us. So you have those two. And the last, I think, is service. So that all of them come to this last great thing, Christ through us. What is the objective of God? Why did God create human beings? That he might live in us and work through us. That he might express himself through us. 
the glory of God, not just in us, but manifested through us, so that in the ages to come, all the whole creation, heaven and earth, should marvel at Jesus Christ in his people. They see him in and through his people. Now, if we look upon this as Calvary, that's, we put it in red, it would make it easier. One half of God's work. And we say this is Pentecost. You have the two sides of God's work, Calvary and Pentecost. And if you have the foundation, we say justified. Justified. That's the foundation of everything. And that's the one side of Calvary. The other side of Calvary we can put here, and we put identified. Identified. Now justified is for. Christ for us, and identified is Christ as us. And then if we take Pentecost, then here we can put indwelt. Indwelt. And the top here, empowered. Indwelt, of course, is Christ in us, and empowered Christ with us. Then we have the four aspects. Two sides to Calvary, two sides to Pentecost. Christ for us, Christ as us, Christ in us, Christ with us. These two are to do with the cross, these are two are to do with the spirit. Of course, you cannot be too clinical. We can't know what it is to be justified without the Spirit of God working. We cannot know what it is to die to self without the Holy Spirit. We certainly know nothing of what it is to be indwelt without the Holy Spirit. And we cannot be empowered without the Holy Spirit. But we still have the great circle that includes all, which is, as it were, the outer circumference of the whole work of God. Everything, as it were, as it comes from the heart, out. And what is that? Well, we could call it service and glory. And if you put it here, then we put food. Now, I don't know whether that makes any sense to you, whether it helps you at all to see the whole uh, full orb uh, fullness of the Lord Jesus for us in every way. Now then, now let's ask a few questions. We need to be careful over the terms we use. Very careful. There are all kinds of terms that have been used down through the ages of church history. I just mention a few of them. Holiness. Christian perfection. Absolute sinlessness. Second blessing, inner light, full the fullness of the Spirit, perfect love, full assurance, 
baptism, the baptism of the Spirit. Now we can fit all those in there, but you know there are many more experiences than that. There are many, for instance, that you will not find that come under any of those headings. Where do you put them? What do you call them? Are they just not to be thought of as experiences, or shall we wait for some great man of God to, ra to be raised up who will start to emphasize one particular aspect of the fullness of Christ, and then we shall have another name for another aspect of experiencing Jesus Christ? Well, when you come to look at all these things, we can fit them here. You see, you take full assurance. Do you know the great Methodist Wesleyan doctrine of full assurance, which has fallen into sad disregard these days, was that it's possible to be saved and yet lack assurance. My dear friends, there are many of us whose problems are nothing to do uh, with uh, death to self, but we just have a terrible sense of insecurity. We are not really sure we're saved. And we won't admit it. But deep down in our heart, there is a sense that somehow we haven't got that full assurance we ought to have. That's why John Charles Wesley and George Whitfield always spoke of, of believers having full assurance. The moment they were saved, they said, now then, have you got full assurance? Does the Spirit of God witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Have you got full assurance of faith? And we speak of it full assurance of understanding. In other words, they know. They can say, I know whom I have believed. Now, for some of us, there's no problem. Somehow, at the very beginning of our experience, we have this glorious assurance given to us. And we say, well, I know I may be awful, I may be weak, I may be sinful, but I know whom I have believed. But there are others of us, and oh, God only knows, there are those who labor under such cloud and such heaviness because they lack assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is to be fitted in the first. Christ for us. And my dear friend, never think that you will ever grow beyond the need of discovering Christ for you. It is not without real import that the last battle Christian had in Pilgrim's Progress was not to do with the Spirit of God empowering, or Christ indwelling, or Christ dying as us, but his sin. And Amy Carmichael said that it's a strange thing that in all the great saints, before they die, they go through a dark patch before they come out into the full sunshine of his presence. And that dark patch is nearly always over, are they saved? It is an interesting that people look upon this as kindergarten, you see. This is elementary, of course. The second thing is Christ as us. Well, now there are many things we connect with that. Christ as us. We speak of holiness. We speak of second blessing. We speak of absolute sinlessness. Some people do. Um, there's others that speak of perfection, Christian perfection. And it is all centered around this aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ as us, and to greater or lesser degree, this aspect, Christ in us. Then you have the fullness of the Spirit, and this is, of course, much to do with the indwelling 
of the Lord Jesus, as well as his empowering. These things overlap. You have many other things we've mentioned here. Inner light. Where do you fit in inner light in here? I'll tell you exactly where you fit it in. It's there. It's not there, and it's not there wholly, but it's there. It was the experience of the indwelling of Jesus Christ through quietness and meditation until they entered into what they called the Sabbath rest of the people of God. It's the Quaker experience, Testagan's experience, Paul Gerhardt's experience, all the old Bohemian brethren, and many, many others in church history have believed in this uh, side. And then, of course, there are many others that we've got here. Um, what, what should we say more about them? You, you have so many names. Of course, the <coughs> baptism of the Spirit is here and here and here. What we call the baptism of the Spirit. Here, here, and here. In, with, through. More than anything else. Why do I say that? Because you see, if you read here, it says, um, uh, in Christ there is all of God in a human body. Please the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. And Jesus is, expre we're expressly told in Matthew and um, uh, chapter uh, 3 that he will in come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Or in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And the thought is that he will take you and he will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. He will take you and he will put you into him. Into the very fullness of God. Now what was this experience? Well, if you turn back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, we have one of the great promises of God which was fulfilled in the ministry of our Lord. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. Chapter 37 and um, verse 14 and I will put my spirit in you and ye shall live. Now this was a wonderfully new note in the Old Testament. When the prophet Ezekiel began to speak about the Holy Spirit being put within us, and John the Baptist takes it up and says, now listen, he says, my theme of my ministry is baptizing in with water to repentance. But the theme of the Lord Jesus' ministry, the Messiah's ministry is, he's going to take you and put you in the Spirit. He's going to take you and he's going to put you in God. That's what he's going to do. And so he speaks to you and to me. What does he mean? Well, this term baptism cannot be just brought down to any one of these aspects. It is in. Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit upon us. Or Christ in us and Christ with us and Christ through us. That's the thought. And that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost when those ones who had received the Holy Spirit within them and the Holy Spirit came upon them and then suddenly they became witnesses unto him and everyone saw Jesus Christ. In, with, through. In, with, through. That's really what we call baptism of the Spirit. Uh, now then, 
What do we say? When should we experience these various experiences of Christ? When? Well, it is quite clear that this one is absolutely elementary. No one can be saved without an experience uh, of Christ for us. That's absolutely elementary. It's the first stone. And I would say that this second one and this third one should undoubtedly be initial. They should be initial. They can be initial, but they often are not. In other words, all the experience we speak of, second blessing, inner light, Christian perfection, full growth, all these things, they ought to be ours at birth. We ought to know the indwelling of Jesus Christ from the moment we're born of God, from the moment we put our trust in him. We should know full assurance from that moment. We should know what it is to be dead to self and alive unto God. We should know these things. There's no need to have a gap between it, to be saved and then go on and on and on in a kind of faltering way and then have to come into a second experience where suddenly we know that the Holy Spirit is really within us. We ought to know he's there. We ought to be living in the good of it from the moment we start. But there are two experiences, and I die on this point, which are undoubtedly a definite second experience. And no one can persuade me that they're initial. Because the Bible says that they're not. Uh, and the two are to be empowered with the Spirit. The endowment of the Spirit is not an initial experience. Now let me make that abundantly clear tonight. The endowment of the Spirit is not an initial experience. The Levite entered into service when he was 30 years of age. He was not allowed to go into service before he was 30 years of age. The Lord Jesus Christ was born of the Spirit and he lived in the Spirit all his 30 years. But only when he was 30 was he endued with the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came upon him and his great ministry began. That was a definite second experience. Why did the Lord Jesus confuse the theologians of all the centuries by saying to them in the upper room, breathing on them quiet, and say, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And a little later say, now then wait until the Holy Spirit clothes you with power from on high. He has confused theologians and books have been written till we're sick of them. For the books only confuse us more. Some tell us that we've got it and some tell us we haven't got it. Some tell us we have the Holy Spirit and we mustn't seek and others say we must seek we haven't got. And they all base upon this Two points of the Lord Jesus. Why did the Lord Jesus do it? Because I believe the Lord Jesus was accentuating, so he was emphasizing something, that we must not mix up two things. The endowment of the Spirit is when you and I grow up. And God forbid that that endowment with power should come upon us before our time. Of any a tragedy that's come, and people who get endued with power before they're old enough to take it. But if you read into church history, you will find again and again that whenever God is going to take up a man or do anything with a man or a woman or a company, he endues them with power. Always. He makes them feel their need. He makes them feel their weakness, their emptiness, until finally, somehow or other, they are brought right into it. Well, uh, suffer that little word. Endowment with power is a definite second experience. And the other thing that's a definite second experience is perfect love. 
of which the Lord knows we need an awful lot. Perfect love is by its very nature a second experience. When your love is perfected, it says in 1 John chapter 4, when your love is perfected. In other words, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's to increase yet more and more. But there comes a point when we enter into complete love. Something happens. And John and Charles Wesley and the Whitfields and Countess of Hunt, Huntington and the rest were absolutely right when they told believers to seek for a definite second experience of perfect love. Well, now I just say those to the rest of all these experiences can be and should be initial and often not. They weren't in my case. I was certainly justified and I wandered for six years till I suddenly found that the Holy Spirit was within me. 1943, I was saved. 1949, I came to an experience that he was in me and I was crucified with Christ. As far as I was concerned, I never knew it before. But you know, there's no need why you and I shouldn't. Some of, some of you here have, have entered into it from the moment you were saved. <coughs> stepped into it and saved yourself an awful lot of trouble. Stepped right into it by a, a, an enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. You knew that you were crucified with Christ. You knew you were alive unto God in him. It is natural when one, one oneself is in need, in a particular way, to feel that everyone else needs exactly the same answer you need. But it is dangerous to general. Dangerous. You just remember that the way God has led you is the way God has led you. And there may be others who are at the similar stage and level that you are. But God forbid that we generalize and lump everyone together and say this is what everyone needs. There's danger along that line. There is also great danger in inducing someone not in need to get or seek an experience of Christ that they're not prepared for. Remember, God the Holy Spirit prepares us for these experiences. There are times when, when somehow we just don't feel in need. And when someone says to someone who's full of glory and, and joy and so on, you need the Holy Spirit, he can't understand it. <laughs> I need the Holy Spirit. He loses his joy, he loses his peace, and he loses his assurance. Now, is that the work of God? Or is that the work of the devil? I ask you. It is perfectly clear that some of us who are hoary with age, spiritually, do need something more of the Holy Spirit. Perfectly apparent. And you and I must seek God. God forbid that we should induce others who don't feel any who've just been saved and living in the glory of it. For remember yourselves. Half the trouble in Christian circles and in the, in the world is that people forget what they were and what they went through. And always think of everything in a contemporary way. Look through contemporary eyes upon people who are miles behind, just entered in. So important just to get these little things clear. There's the reason for so many spiritual tragedies. That people have been taken off the solid ground of what Christ is preparing them for and doing in them and then turning them over to something else that's induced artificially. And then afterwards there's tragedy and everyone is sad about it. And I think it's also a, there is also a need to watch uh, this point that because we are in great need, um, we 
we do not blame everyone else. Now, I know this from my own experience. For when I went through a terrible time, I blamed everyone. Uh, I, six years after I was converted, and I blamed the pastor, and I blamed the deacons, and I blamed the church, and I blamed the wife, said they were all dead. I said they were all hopeless. They were empty. They didn't understand. They were spiritual nincompoops. I can't think what else the words I used of them. I remember one poor Sunday school teacher walking me around the green and I ran down everyone I could think of uh, in the place. Because to me, it seemed that not a soul knew where I was spiritually. All they could say was I was backsliding. Well, there may be a thing. But you know, there's no good blaming everyone else for your own spiritual need. This is one of the great problems of people. When we are in spiritual need, they, they blame, we blame everyone else. Pitchfork the blame onto others instead of saying, I'm responsible. There's something wrong with me. I need to seek the Lord. And to start to really seek the Lord. There's a great need there. Now, lastly, how can we know God's provision for us in Christ in this way? Here we have it. How can we enter in? can we enter in? Very simple, we're not going to spend long here, but I, I'm quite sure that we can say something that may help some at any rate. How can we know God's provision for us in Christ in a practical way? The first thing is this, we've got to learn to confess our real state. It's as simple as that. Sometimes, you know, we know so much that we don't like to admit that we're in real need, or we are older spiritually, and we just feel we cannot admit that what we know up here is not really in us. Some of us have been brought up under the teaching of the cross. We've been brought up under the teaching of Christ uh, living within us, and we're loath to really admit to anyone that the thing isn't in us. We've got it up here, but it's not here. But until you and I confess, look, I'm I, I just not there. I know it up here, but I'm not there spiritually. Until we're there and ready to confess it, God can do nothing, because we're living at an artificial level. God never deals with us on artificial levels. It's only when you and, come on to, you and I come down to the basis of reality, God deals with us. That's the first thing. We must learn to confess our real state. We may know much, but is it in us? The second thing is, seek the Lord for enlightenment. Seek the Lord for enlightenment. We need to become aware of our need so that we can be specific. It's no good just saying, now Lord, I need a bit more. The Lord expects you to seek him with all your heart till you know what you need. Of course you may say, Lord, I need thee, but I need, I, there's such an emptiness in me, or there's such a, uh, 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 a paralysis in me, or there's such a heaviness in me, or there's something else. You see, until I know my need, I can say, now Lord, I'm going to be specific. Ye have not because ye ask not. Learn to be specific. Christ is given to us in all this wonderful way. It's like someone having appendicitis and giving him an aspirin. Just because uh, we know that aspirins deal with some aches and pains, you can't give it for everything. You've got to know the need, and then you know what the answer to the need is. You can ask for it. Now remember that. And then again, the third thing is, by faith, 
take what God has provided. Remember, it's all there for you in Christ, and it's provided on the basis of his finished work. It's yours. Once you're, he's given you light, take by faith what is yours. Just as you took your salvation, walk by faith. As you received Christ Jesus, your Lord, so walk in him. Take by faith what you need, whatever it is. And lastly, one little word that may help. Remember this, when you've been brought up under good teaching and more full teaching, it is rare to have the same vividness of experience. Let me illustrate. Those who were born in Christian families and brought up under the teaching of the gospel, you know, many of them have said to me, oh, how many times I've, oh, I wish I'd been I wish I'd been saved in an unsaved home. Because it, it wasn't vivid, you know. I knew it all, you see. And it happened, I'm saved. But it wasn't clear, it wasn't clearly defined, it wasn't vivid, it wasn't as different as night to day. Now some of us who were saved from pagan homes, my word, our conversion was as clear as the difference between night, midnight and midday. Absolute clear-cut difference, something happened, and we knew it. But those in Christian homes, it's rare to find that. Because they know the teaching from childhood, and they grow up, there comes a point when they receive the Lord Jesus, and they're truly saved, but there's no vividness about it. It is exactly the same when you've been under good teaching. You are aware of these things. You are taught in these things. And sometimes we, we want to have something vivid, absolutely vivid, as different as midnight to midday. And we want to be able to say, now I know, I know. But you know, you will find people who've really got a real experience, who know these things, and they'll tell you, I claimed by faith and something happened. There may not be the vividness there. Now, I believe that's one of the explanations why some folk have said to me, you know, we've gone to meetings, we've gone to conferences, we've gone uh, to conventions, and we've seen wonderful things, but we didn't feel anything. We took by faith. We saw other people absolutely full. But we, it's because you were used to it. When I came to an experience of Christ within me, it was so vivid that it eclipsed my conversion. I really wondered whether I'd ever been converted. It was so tremendous for me. But that was because somehow or other I was unaware of these things. I had not even heard that the Holy Spirit was in, within. You understand? When you've been taught and taught and taught, it goes in up here. Sometimes it's not here. And when it comes to the point where we've got to confess it, it's only by faith we go in. Just as we were saved, we've got to say, Lord Jesus, you've done it. Now, Lord, I seek you. Make this thing real in me. Really in me. Whatever it is. Well, may the Lord help us to come into something more of him, whatever way we need him. And our Lord Jesus Christ, Oh, we do praise Thee that in, in Thee everything is provided. We thank Thee for all that fullness that is ours. And we pray, Lord, for a spirit of faith to enter into what is ours. Oh, Lord, 
grant that enlightenment <coughs> and that brokenness of spirit that is which will enable us, Lord, to confess our condition to Thee and start to walk on the ground of truth in this matter, reality, and seek Thee, Lord, for what we need and take what is ours in Thee. Lord, help us, we pray, that we may progressively know all that is ours in Thee and may be living in the good of it from start to finish. We ask it, dear Lord Jesus, in thy name. Amen. Amen.